Thank you, worship team. My heart is just so full. That was such a wonderful selection of music. Mark 10, 17 through 27 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you don't have your Bible with you, just follow along on the screen behind me. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You like one thing? Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying that he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the word of God. You can be seated. And as you're being seated, would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, I want to ask that you would please speak to us today through your word. Lord, you've spoken to me through the music this morning. It was just so rich and fulfilling and good. If we were to stop here, I would still be so full and content and happy. But Lord, you have more for us. Lord, you have the richest part of the service still to come. And it's your word the Word of God, you speak to us through this book, and we are so thankful for that. And now, Lord, I pray that we we would not hear these as just words from a book, but we would hear them for what they really are, the words of God. And then please, by your Holy Spirit, give us grace to walk in obedience to them. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. It is very good to see all of you this morning. Thank you so much for coming. The message, as you heard, Mark 10, 17 through 27, I've titled it, The Peril of Possessions. This is actually part one. We're going to cover this entire paragraph, uh, the remainder of the paragraph. If you had your Bible open, you would have seen it. I didn't actually finish the, the entire section there as it's sectioned off in most of our Bibles. We still have verses 28 through 31 to go through, and those will be next week because the Lord has more to say to us on this topic. And it was so much that he had to say to us that I thought, I, did, I, can't, I can't just do all this, this entire section in just one message. So, the peril of possessions, part one. So Mark, in Mark's gospel, we've just left, if you were here last week, we just left the conversation where Jesus was teaching about what's needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. He told us, he made it very clear, Jesus took a child up in his arms and said, 
that we must enter the kingdom of God like a child, dependent, having no sense of self-importance, and in childlike trust, simply following Jesus at his word. We talked about those things last week. What's interesting is in this section, Jesus meets a man who's essentially the opposite of all those things. He's independent, important in society, no doubt, because of his wealth, and refuses to follow Jesus at his word. He's been commonly called the rich, young ruler. In all three Gospels where this account is mentioned, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's said to be rich, wealthy. But it's only in Matthew's Gospel that we learn that he's young, and it's only in Luke's Gospel that we learn that he's a ruler. So we put them all three together, and that's where he got the name, the rich, young ruler. Probably even in some of your Bibles, if you have it open, you might see the heading even says that. His possessions are many, but there's one thing he doesn't possess, and it must be gnawing at him. And we'll see why I believe that. So look at verse 17. It says, And as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, this a man runs up, knelt down before him, and asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. In Matthew's gospel, he actually says, what good deed, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? More than likely, the rich young ruler was drawn to Jesus after hearing his teaching. Since we know from Mark chapter 1, we learned at the very beginning of this gospel that Jesus didn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught as one having authority, we're told. He was noticeably a very different type of teacher because he was a very different type of man. He was, in fact, the God-man, teaching as one who has authority. And he has all authority because these are his words. He's inspired all of them through his spirit. So the text says this man runs up, and we're told also, number two, that he kneels down. Both of those things are important. Let me tell you why. First of all, Mark didn't just add those things as, let me just throw these things in. No, this would have been, this would have stood out to you. If you were a first century Jew, you would have said, whoa, he ran up and he knelt down. Number one, it was not customary for a Jewish man to run in those days. Running was sort of seen like a thing that like little children did. It was not decent for a grown man, a grown Jewish man, to run. When we were missionaries, um, one thing that we learned about the culture is that among the Mayan Indians, they all wore what they call long pants. None of them wore what they called short pants. We call them shorts. The Mayan Indian men didn't wear shorts because only children wore shorts. Children could wear them all day, but Mayan Indian men never wore shorts. That was just not decent for men. So what that meant for me was anytime that I had to go out in that 100 
degree, 220,000% humidity, I had to wear pants because I might come in contact with one of the Mayan Indian men from the village, and I don't want to put anything between he and I. And so I was always sweating. And then as soon as I got home, I ripped the pants off and put shorts on and get in front of a fan for about 30 minutes. So it was not customary for a Jewish man to run at all. So that's why, especially when Jesus tells the parable, you might recall in the parable of the prodigal son, remember when the father, he says in the parable, the father runs to meet his son. That's why that's important that that's noted because it would have meant that this man threw off all decency. He threw, he threw decency aside at the sight of his returning son. He loved his son more than he loved his own self-image. So it's similar with this man. He sees Jesus at this point as that important. I need to run up and get in front of this man. Then secondly, the text says that he kneels down. Now, because he was rich, he was more than likely also respected. Sort of seems to be that way in almost any culture in the world. If you're very wealthy, you're seen as important. And people respect you more. Even if you're not worthy of respect, they give you respect. And what you say tends to have more weight even, just because you're wealthy. But kneeling down shows that he views Jesus more highly than his own image. He respects Jesus more than his respectable image. So he's off to a good start. He's come to the right person, Jesus, and he's coming the right way with humility. So he's off to a good start. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an appropriate question. We would call that one of the ultimate questions, really, of our life. There are these questions that we say are ultimate questions. There's actually even a a gospel tract booklet called Ultimate Questions, and it, it talks about that. How do you get to heaven? So though the man had great possessions, it's clear he didn't possess assurance of eternal life. You know, he'd probably acquired almost everything he'd ever dreamt of but something still was unsettled in his soul. We just sang about it being well with our souls. That man who lost his daughters was well with his soul because he knew God's in control and I'm going to see them again. And this was all part of God's plan. It's well with my soul. This man was not well with his soul. He was unsettled. He didn't have assurance of eternal life. Let me ask you this, church. Because, you need to ask you this, do you have assurance of eternal life? Do you know that you know that you know that you will be with the Lord Jesus in heaven when you die? Because we're all going to die. I received something in the mail recently. It's our life insurance. They want us to go to whole life instead of term life. And it said that our health insurance is, is good. I mean, not health insurance, life insurance, rather. If I said health earlier, I wouldn't say life. And I saw, though, that our, our life insurance actually had a cutoff. It said it's only good 
until 120 years of age. And I thought, that's probably enough. I don't think I'll get to 121. But if I do, Amy gets zero when I die. The children, they, they get nothing because I lived too long. Past 120 years old. None of us are going to get to 120. Very few of us are going to get to 100. Even fewer of us are going to get to 90 and 80. Some of us may not even get to 2022. We don't know. But I'll tell you this, unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to die. And you know this. And the man knew this. And he wanted assurance of eternal life. And you want assurance of eternal life. If you do not have assurance of eternal life, it gnaws at you. You can sort of numb that feeling with activity, but then there always comes a point where you're alone, it's quiet, or something traumatic happens, and you think about it. And you either make sure that you're sure, or you continue to try to numb that voice because it's uncomfortable. You don't want to face the Lord because only the Lord can give assurance of eternal life. But you need to possess that knowledge and we're going to talk about how you can possess it as we continue on with this message. But the thing that's separating you, as you know, the thing that's separating you from heaven is your sin. The Lord's a good judge. And he will not clear the wicked. He will not let sin go unpunished unless someone is punished in your place. And Jesus has already taken the punishment for all of our sins. But if you're not sure, you can be. You can be sure. But it's only through Christ. Nothing of your own doing. Please keep listening. If you don't have assurance, please keep listening. Jesus has more to say. Verse 18. So Jesus answers the man, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Some like to point to this verse and say, See, Jesus never claimed to be God, which just isn't true, because if you read the book of John, I think it's overwhelmingly clear. In the book of John, I think it's more clear than any other place that Jesus did claim deity. Jesus wasn't denying his own goodness, nor was he denying his own deity here. He wanted the man to recognize the real meaning of the word good. That only God possesses true goodness. He wanted the man to address Jesus himself as Good only if he truly recognized Jesus is God. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The appropriate answer back, had he had full understanding, and he probably would have had to have followed Jesus from beginning to end to this, to this point to get that fullest understanding. But to get that fullest knowledge, a proper response back would have been, yes, I called you good because you're the son of God. I've heard you say it. You're the, you're the son of David. You're the, you're the Messiah. And I know what that means. I chose good on purpose. 
because you're right. Only God is good. And that's why I called you good, teacher. Jesus answers the man by referring him to the law. Jesus' answer to the man after correcting him is to point him to the law, which is interesting. Look at this. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. As a Jewish man, Jesus assumes the man knew the law because he says, you know the commandments. You know them. This was a Jewish man. This wasn't a Gentile. He can say to him, you know the commands. You know them. And he's namely speaking of the Ten Commandments, of course, in case that wasn't clear for you yet. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. And Jesus recounts five of them specifically and then mentions one other that is not necessarily one of the Ten Commandments. He says, do not defraud. If we assume that by do not defraud, he's referring to do not covet, which is the tenth one, then Jesus quoted all six of the Ten Commandments that deal with your relationship to mankind. If you're not aware, the Ten Commandments are broken up into four and six. The first four deal with your relationship to God, and the other six deal with your relationship with mankind. That's how they're broken up. Just read them and you'll see. So if we assume that by do not defraud, he meant do not covet, then he's just, he's just quoting all six of the ones that deal with how you relate to your fellow man. And so, he says, obey the commandments. I want you to take note of what he didn't say. Because the man says, how can I receive eternal life? How can I go to heaven when I die? I want you to notice what he didn't say. He did not say, if you want to receive eternal life, then pray this prayer after me. I call it the sinner's prayer. Bow your head, close your eyes. Father, I know I'm a sinner. Father, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you sent your son Jesus. I believe you sent He didn't do that. He didn't do that, did he? He pointed him to the law. He pointed him to the law of God that gives us the knowledge of sin because no man can truly keep the law. Look at Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20. We have a slide for that. It's right behind me. Paul talks about it, giving us the knowledge of sin. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why, Paul? Since through the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the point of the law. And Paul even says, through the law, no one's going to be justified. You know why? Because when you look at the law, all you see is a roadblock. It says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and don't do this. And you say, well, I've already done all those things. Not only have I already done them, I, I struggle with wanting to do them. Especially if you're not saved, you struggle with being dishonest. Who can look at the one that says, don't steal, and say, never stole anything, even in my whole life, not even a stick of gum, Cohen, I don't believe you. You've stolen something. 
You've taken something that's not yours, I promise. I still have a vivid memory in my head of being at a friend's house and looking at all of his Hot Wheels, and I saw a shiny red one, and I wanted it bad. And I took it from my friend. I stole it. I did. When I was a little boy, I can remember having that feeling as a small little boy of, I see that, I want it, I'm taking it. That was coveting and stealing. And if someone would have said, hey, where's my red Hot Wheel? I would have said, I don't know. And that would have been lying too. Jesus quotes the law to make the man see clearly and admit honestly that he was a lawbreaker. To show him clearly that his, his biggest problem is that he's broken God's laws and therefore has sinned against a holy God. It was to show him his need for a savior. A savior from sin. That's why I pointed him to the law. That's why we should point people to the law of God. Someone says, hey, I want to go to heaven when I die. We don't automatically go to, cool, pray, pray this prayer. We need to talk about whether or not they know they even need a Savior. Who doesn't want to go to heaven? Who doesn't want to go to heaven? I mean, if you put it out in front of people, okay, person who I've never met, I've got a question for you. When you die, would you like eternal bliss? No more tears, no more suffering. Be united to all your loved ones who've passed away in something like, I don't know, eternal golf courses forever. Or would you like to burn in flames consciously for eternity? Which one would you like, stranger? Hmm, I'll get back to you. Let me think about that. No, of course, everybody wants that one. Everybody wants the bliss and the happiness. Who doesn't want that? Now, what they don't know about that place also is God is there. (laughs) They don't want the God part, more than likely. If they're not saved, God's there. So that might make them a bit uncomfortable. But when you just lay it out as to eternal joys or eternal sufferings, who doesn't want eternal joy? We know joy, real joy, only comes from the presence of God. Because if you took away the eternal golf course, even if I was never reunited to my loved ones, I would still be perfectly happy in the presence of God. So Jesus quotes the law to make him see his sin. So how does the man respond? Does he confess in honesty that he hasn't fully kept God's laws? What's he say? Look at verse 20. He said, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. I've kept them all perfectly, good teacher. Every single aspect of them I've kept. Well, good for you, rich young ruler. But you know, the apostle Paul also had a similar self-righteousness as this man. But later discovered the truth and considered all his former self-righteousness to be garbage. Look at Philippians 3. We're going to look at Philippians 3, 4 through 9, and see how the Apostle Paul was a lot like this man before he met Jesus. And then something changed when he met Jesus. So we're actually going to start halfway through verse 4 because that verse is sort of split up differently than the people who assign verse numbers to the text split it up. But we're going to start halfway through that verse where it starts with, 
if anyone else thinks. Do you see that there? He says this, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So that's, the, that's what we see with this man, the rich young ruler. He has confidence in the flesh. All these things I have kept from my youth. I have done all that. Confidence in the flesh. Paul says, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Let me tell you why. Look at this. Circumcised on the eighth day. If you don't know, Jewish young boys, that was the command. Circumcise them on the eighth day. So he says, that was done for me. I was circumcised on the eighth day. So basically he says, listen, I'm off to a good start. Even from babyhood. What's next? Of the people of Israel, I am one of the chosen people. I'm one of the Jews. Next, of the tribe of Benjamin, a notable tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What's he mean by that? I stood out from the crowd. I was not a normal Jew. I I was head and shoulders above the rest. I was the cream of the crop. What else? As to the law, let me tell you, a Pharisee. What does that mean? I made it my occupation to study the law of God and ensure that it was kept in society and correct those who weren't holding it. It was my job. I got paid to do it. Next, as to zeal, you want to know if I carry that out? You want to know if I really took it real seriously? Let me tell you about my zeal. A persecutor of the church. I physically put hands on people even who didn't uphold the law. I made sure that they were properly punished for believing things contrary to what we thought they should believe. We physically punished them. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He said, no one could have pointed at my life and found anything. No one could have pointed and said, but what about that, Paul? What about this? You're not good enough in this area. You're not good enough in that area. What about, what about, what about? He said, you could have put me under the microscope and you would have found that I kept all the laws externally, blamelessly. But then he discovered what all this self-righteous thinking really was. Look at verses seven through nine. But, that's, that's our contrast word there. If you've been in, your bio, in the Bible study class on Wednesday nights, we know whenever we see a but, there's a contrast. We're changing the subject. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as Rubbish. We don't usually use that word rubbish much. If you're from England, you will. They say rubbish for what we say, trash. I count them as trash in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, I looked at my self-righteousness and I said, it is no righteousness at all. It is no righteousness. 
It's not true, real righteousness. The only righteousness that is real and true is only through Christ. Faith in him and what he did. Because he is the perfect law keeper. I'm actually just a self-righteous person. I compare myself to other people and say, I'm doing better than him, therefore, I'm good. And when you try that with Jesus Christ, you're found lacking because he is perfect. Paul figured that out. He was similar to this rich young ruler in his mental state. But he found what truly is gain, what really profits, what's actual wealth. Paul found it. It's the righteousness from Christ through Christ, from God, that only comes by faith. And righteousness, through Christ, from God, that's by faith. And the young man whom Jesus was speaking to was still trusting in his own righteousness, a self-righteousness that was lacking, but viewed it as succeeding. What's interesting, though, is that the man still doubted. Very self-righteous. He saw himself as a law keeper, but still had no assurance of eternal life. Do you see that? All these things I've kept from my youth. But he's in front of Jesus on his knees saying, how can I get eternal life though? I'm a law keeper, but I have no assurance. Do you know why that is? What is good enough? What's good enough? If you help 10 people in one day, you may lay your head down on your pillow and say, but I could have helped 11. If you give $1,000 to a charity, couldn't you have given 100 more dollars? If you read your Bible for an hour a day, Couldn't you read it for a little longer? If you prayed for every single person in church, by name, every day, couldn't you have prayed for the people in the church down the road too? What's good enough? Is there anything that's ever good enough? Can't you always do a little more? That's why it doesn't matter how self-righteous you are. You can never know whether it's actually good enough. Martin Luther would stay in the confessional for hours and hours and hours before he was saved because he had such a sin sensitivity. He knew. You know, I I coveted my fellow monk's piece of bread. (laughs) I mean, how much trouble can you get in as a monk, right? And he would stay in the confessional for so long that they thought, he must be dodging his responsibilities or something. He's, he must be staying this long because he doesn't want to go scrub the floors with the other monks or something. What's, he, what's his deal? His deal was he knew he's not good enough. He would do all his monkly responsibilities and he knew, but this is not good enough. If you're trusting in your own works to save you, you never truly know if it's enough because you can always do more. 
So how does Jesus reply to this man? In a very interesting way. Look at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. At that, he was probably like, really? Just one thing? Just one more thing? Tell me. I'm ready. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. He mentions heaven. You'll have treasure there. So you're obviously going to be there. You have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. So the text says Jesus looks at him. Did you notice that? Jesus looks at him. The text starts that way. Looking at him. Jesus isn't a disinterested fact proclaiming machine. He's not just like some of those doctors that you have met that are, have zero bedside manner and they're just facts. And they walk in and they say, blah, 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 bye. And you're like, wow, he is a robot. He's just robotic in his brain. A very wealthy robot, but... Uh, he just has zero personality, just facts, 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 big words that I don't understand. Jesus wasn't like that. And Jesus looked the man right in the eyes and loved him. He looked the man right in his eyes with care and concern because he himself was also a man. Man to man. He looked him in the face. But then it also says, but he loved him. He loved him as the God-man also. He had compassion on a sinner. Looking at him, he loved him. The young man's answer, of course, was unsatisfactory. Not the answer that Jesus was looking for. I've kept all these things. He already didn't truly know the, the heart and purpose of the law, which was to show that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, and who can know it? To show that man needs a Savior, and that is the Messiah, God's sent one, God's unique chosen one. But Jesus loved this man enough to tell him what was truly keeping him from eternal life. Did you hear what I said? Jesus loved this man enough to tell him what was truly keeping him from eternal life. Charles Spurgeon once said, your best friend is the person who tells you the most truth. <laughs> Jesus looked at this man's heart. Jesus knew what the problem truly was for this man. And Jesus loved this man enough to show him his real problem. We sometimes think that it's loving for us to just back off and just let this fellow loved one of mine just be wrong and just live his or her way and just not ever address it. It's actually more loving for you to address it in a loving way, of course, in an appropriate way and in a creative way even sometimes. I'm not saying you have to go right up to the person at the meal after he or she has put the potatoes or whatever on the plate and say, by the way, did you know this is your problem? <laughs> now you do it, of course, in gracious, kind, respectful, but bold ways. Why? Because you love the person. 
Is that easy? No. But if you want easy, get out of Christianity. It's not for you. This is, this is not. This is not for you. When Jesus convicts you of sin, when Jesus uncomfortably points to something in your life and says, what about that? Did you know that that's actually loving of him? You don't like it. I don't like it. But it doesn't matter. Jesus sees that thing in your life for what it really is. It's something that's keeping you from either knowing him if you're not saved or knowing him better if you are saved. Is there something that Jesus doesn't want to be in your life? Is there something that Jesus doesn't want to be in your life? I'm asking all of us that. Of course, not looking for any audible response, but a heart response. Is there something that Jesus doesn't want to be in your life that's in your life right now? Lord, show them and show me what's keeping us from knowing you more and what's keeping us from possibly entering the kingdom or being closer to you in the kingdom. Let's see how the man responds to Jesus. Look at verse 22. Starts off with this word, disheartened. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He was disheartened by the saying because his possessions had hold on his heart. And that's what he didn't like about Jesus' saying. He didn't like that Jesus pointed that out. Jesus said one thing, one thing you got to do. And the man was ready. And Jesus said the one thing the man was not willing to do. And Jesus knew it was the one thing he was not willing to do. That's why Jesus said it. If Jesus is pointing out a stronghold in your life, Christian, know this, it's because he loves you. And he's trying to get out of your life what's destroying you and keeping you from knowing him better. If you've got the thought of, I just feel distant from God, I just feel distant from God, I just feel distant from God. Is there something in your life that's keeping you distant from God that you know is keeping you distant from God that he's been pointing at, maybe for years even? And you're like, well, yeah, but, but I've struggled with it for years and it's obviously not going away, so whatever. It's got to be something. There's got to be some other reason. Maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's that. And maybe it's time for you to double down and leave the old childish ways behind and grow up in Christ. And I'm talking to myself too, okay, guys? I'm not that preacher who stands up here and slugs his congregation and says, be better, losers. I'm saying, this hits me hard too, okay, guys? And I'm preaching to myself as well because there's some things that I see in my life even that I say, why are you still struggling with that? That's old Cohen. That's old Cohen. It's time to grow up. I speak to myself rough, and so I don't have to speak to y'all rough. <laughs> I can be rough with myself. I can hurt my own feelings. 
Jesus points at the true God in this man's life, doesn't he? Lowercase g God. He points to the true God in this man's life. And the man didn't want to give that God up. He went away sad, says the text. So he enters Jesus' presence, uncaring about what other people thought, uncaring about the fact that he was running and kneeling. He did not care. He was enamored by the good teacher, but he leaves Jesus' presence not running or or leaping for joy. He leaves Jesus' presence with his head hung, and he's disappointed, and he's sad, walking away slowly. So Jesus uses this example to teach the ones who are his true followers. Jesus is not into waste, as we know that, right? Even when he fed the 5,000, they picked up the leftovers. Remember that? Jesus is not into waste. He's not. And he doesn't waste this opportunity either. He doesn't just let this opportunity pass. He sees they heard what happened. They saw what happened. And so Jesus uses this and says, I'm going to teach those who have left all to follow me. I'm going to use this to teach them even more. Because he invests in his people. Jesus invests in you. Did you know that? He invests in you. He doesn't want anything to be wasted, even a bad experience. Some of you need to hear that. Even a bad experience. He wants to use that to invest in you, okay? He uses it to further help and warn those who do love him. And what's he say? Look at verses 23 to 25. Jesus looks around, said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus says to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Very common saying. That's quoted all the time. And no, it's not referring to some gate in Jerusalem that was little, and if a camel got down real low, he could get through it. As a teacher, as a pastor that I once had would say, bunk, that's what he said. Whenever something was hogwash or foolish, he would say, bunk. (laughs) He even said it at a funeral once. (laughs) Brother Jimmy, why is it so difficult and hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? I've got three reasons. Wealth never truly satisfies. Wealth never truly satisfies. You always keep chasing more. Think about back to when some of you in here who are a little older or middle age, think about to when you were freshly married. Think about your first house, okay? Think about your first job, your first paychecks, your first car and all that. Remember those? Then remember being in that house or in that car or having that paycheck. Remember thinking, you know, if we just had a little bit bigger house, that was probably your thoughts. If we just had a little bit bigger house, we just had a little bit nicer car, we just had a little more money, wouldn't that be great? Okay, well now you're probably in your life, a point in your life, where you've got a little bigger house, don't you? You have little nicer cars, don't you? You're probably getting paid a little more than you were back when you were in your 20s, right? But guess what? I know you're thinking, because it's like my thinking. You know, What if we had a little bit bigger house? What, what if we had a little nicer car? Because already, 
I'm thinking about Amy's next van, okay? I mean, she's, we drive a 2001 minivan, okay? So already I'm thinking, hey, what, what about our next van? And sometimes I even think, what about our next house? And I guarantee you right now that your paycheck's probably more than what it was when you were in your 20s. But I bet if your employer came to you and said, hey, Mr. Smith, how would you like a $1,000 bonus with every single check? You probably wouldn't say, no, I'm okay. You know, I'm actually okay. Thank you, but I'm making more now than I did in my 20s. So therefore, it's all good. No, you want more money. I know you want more money. I know you do. I don't even have to guess. Now, there may be a few of you in here who are super content with where you are. Maybe you've got a lot of money already. I don't know. But maybe you're like, no, I actually don't need any more money. Well, let me tell you right now, praise God for that. (laughs) You probably do, but keep praising him for that. But what I've seen and what you see is once you get more money, you want more money. You're okay with it for a while. You're like, dude, this paycheck is so huge. Remember your first paycheck? I remember my first paycheck. I thought I was rich. I was working at Domino's Pizza part-time. And they were paying me. That was back in 96. So I was making somewhere around, I think minimum wage then was 575 or 525. I remember my first paycheck. I'm telling you. I thought, I am one wealthy man. Look at this. It's over $100. And they pay me every two weeks. And I threatened to leave once. My boss said, I'll pay you 25 cents more per hour if you stay. And I said, I'll stay. Are you kidding me? A quarter more an hour? I'm even richer. (laughs) And you want more. I left that job to get a job that paid more. And the job after that, guess what? I left the job that paid more. And the job after that, I became a missionary. (laughs) Next point. Let's just move on. (laughs) There is a text, though, that says this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. All right, number two. Why it's so hard to enter the kingdom if you're rich. Wealth makes you depend on wealth. Wealth makes you dependent on wealth and not God. Whenever people are very, very rich and they come up against a problem, you know what they think? Do we have enough money to cover this problem? You know what poor, godly people think when they come up against a problem? Let's pray. Because we have no way to get out of this. We don't have the money. We We don't have anything here but God to help us. We need the Lord. And so they pray. They have to pray because that's all they've got is the Lord. They don't have anything to fall back on. They don't have their wealth. And wealth makes you depend on wealth. Number three. And last thing, why it's hard to get into the kingdom if you're rich. Wealth produces pride. Wealth produces pride. You have a sense of self-importance. You've got what everyone else chases after. 
you've got it. You possess what others wish they could have. You have those things. And show me a very wealthy person with a very nice car, very nice car, who never tells anybody about that car. (laughs) He doesn't exist. She doesn't exist. Wealthy people with nice cars, really nice cars, love to tell people about those cars. I was watching something with Floyd Mayweather recently. You guys know him, boxer? Very wealthy. And they were doing a tour of his mansion. And they were not in that mansion for a few minutes. And you know what he said? Let me show you my cars. He brought it up. You know why? Because he has seven cars worth more than $15 million that he said he never drives. But he sure wanted to show them off. Wealth produces pride. So, number one, Wealth never truly satisfies. Number two, wealth makes you depend on wealth. Number three, wealth produces pride. Now, listen to what the disciples say about this. They were exceedingly astonished. This is verses 26 and 27 now. They were exceedingly astonished and said to them, then who can be saved? Why do they say that? Well, Because they know that mankind chases after wealth. They were like, wait, wait, wait a second. Everybody's... Everybody's wanting money. Everybody goes after more money. Everybody tries to gain more wealth. It's very few people that just do the bare minimum to live for the day and then wake up and say, wonder what we're going to eat for breakfast. I have no idea. I didn't even think about breakfast. I just made sure we had supper and then stopped there. Very few people in the world do that, though there were some that do that. But they said, wait, so who who then can be saved? Because everybody's chasing after money, Lord. Everybody that we know wants to be rich and tries to get more money. So Jesus looks at them and says this, with man, it's impossible. The reason Jesus' followers are astonished and wonder who can be saved is because they know that this is how man usually is. People are like this. And Jesus just comes out and tells them what's really the truth of the matter. It's impossible for man in his sinful state, in his state of living in this world system, chasing after more wealth, consumed by that thought usually, in his own independence, self-serving, self-righteous attitude. It's impossible. It's impossible for man, if he stays the way he is, to be saved in the system he's trying to be saved in. It's impossible. Nobody can be saved except for the rest of the sentence. What's he say? But not with God. For all things are possible with God. God did something to save man. And it's the only way man can be saved. John 14, 6. 
You know it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. So without Jesus, there is no way. I'm almost done. Hang with me a bit longer. I saved the best for last. God did the impossible when he sent his son, born of the Virgin Mary, flesh and deity became one. It is a unique thing that will never, ever happen again. He is the only case study in his category that we have. There was never anyone like him, and there will never be anyone like him ever again. And he came, and he lived a sinless, perfect life, perfectly keeping the law of God. The roadblock for us, he perfectly kept it. And then he willingly took the wrath of God upon himself as if he was a lawbreaker so that all those who put their faith and trust in what he did can be saved. Isn't that good news? That is the best news, especially for us who are more like the rich young ruler than we're like Jesus. If you put us on a comparison scale and said, which one? Here's Jesus. Here's the rich young ruler. We're going to drop you here and see just which one you gravitate more towards. Just we're going to test it all. Even thoughts you didn't know you had, we're just going to test it all. And you would land there and you would gravitate way closer to the rich young ruler than you would to Jesus Christ. You're not like him in and of yourself. And what God did was the impossible. He made it so that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, all of Jesus' righteousness goes on to your account and all of your sin is counted on Jesus' account. He took the punishment. He took the fall and you're counted not guilty. It's as if someone stormed in the courtroom and said, I'll pay his fine. And the, court, and the judge said, but it's $18 trillion. And the man said, I'll pay it all right here. And he paid it all. A better illustration would be, but his punishment is the electric chair. And the man said, I'll take the electric chair if you'll let him go. That's a better illustration. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you, number one, do the impossible in the salvation of man through your dear son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to you in his name, thanking you for the service this morning, thanking you for the word, thanking you for the music, thanking you for the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel that has the power to save sinners. And I pray that you'd be drawing sinners with this message even now. I pray that those of us that don't have assurance of our salvation, I pray that you would haunt those ones that do not have assurance just like the man was haunted 
of his lack of assurance until they make it right with you. Lord, many a man has been brought to you because he feared death and what came after. And the gospel fears us, frees us from the fear of death because you conquered death, Lord Jesus. You have the keys of death and Hades. You have authority over them. So draw sinners to yourself and please continue to build up the saints as you point to the things in our life that you don't want to see there anymore and as you give us the grace to overcome them. In Jesus' name, amen.